0: When I was negotiating the contracts here, they said, you're going to have an all-day DJ. And I was like, what do you mean I'm going to have an all-day DJ? You're going to have an all-day DJ. And I was like, OK, what do you mean I'm going to have an all-day DJ? And then the lady looked a bit frustrated at me and went, you're going to have an all-day DJ. And it's only when we moved in, I went, oh, the all-day DJ. (laughs) That's
1: Vishal Maria of data analytics firm Quantexa. You're listening to Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bonnell Advisors, the consultants who guide you on expanding stateside. I'm Nas tavakoli Far, or NAS for short, and this is the second season of the podcast. This season, we're going to be hearing from businesses who've actually made the move to the US. We want to hear about their journey, their experiences, and any do's or don'ts. We'll be having episodes every two weeks. Also, send us your questions. Mount Bunnell CEO, Sebastian Sauerborn, will be answering queries you have about expanding to the States. Send them over to info at mountburnell.com. We've also put that in the show notes. look, We are at a WeWork. It's 10 in the morning. It's pretty loud for 10 in the morning. Just walked in. There's a DJ. There's some nice Loungey chairs, there's a massive sound system, and we're going to go speak to Vishal Maria of Quantexa. That's us going into WeWork to chat to this week's guest. We battled our way past the morning DJ and the kombucha on tap up to the offices of Quantexa, where we spoke to founder Vishal Maria. Now, Quantexa offer data analysis for a variety of sectors. They help their clients build up an accurate image of someone and their network so that the clients have a fuller view of what's going on. Vishal told the website Click that you don't buy a house by looking through the letterbox. You walk in, see each room, assess whether it's right for you. You build up the context of the house. At Quantexa, we help our clients to do the same thing with their customers. They've been opening up offices in the US and in Canada. We sat down with Vishal to hear more about this journey.
0: Vishal Maria, CEO, founder of Quantexa, uh, founded Quantexa in March 2016. So we've been running now for three years and seven months. What, What do you guys do? So we enable our clients to make better decisions by providing them context using internal and external data.
1: And how do you do that, though?
0: So the process of what we do, we have a platform um, which have a number of products, uh, two of those products being entity resolution and network generation. So entity resolution is a process of taking internal and external data, using statistics to understand who your customer is, who your pseudo-customer is, and then the network generation component is finding the relationships between those entities to provide context.
2: So that is like artificial intelligence, i read somewhere i think i read an article uh, by the financial times about you and i think they put it quite simple right this was about your client hsbc yes and they said hsbc takes on board artificial intelligence to um, prevent money laundering or help preventing money laundering. So that's
0: one of our applications or one of our solutions is financial crime, under financial crime, anti-money laundering. And you're absolutely right. Yes, HSBC uses our platform um, to solve and disrupt um, financial crime globally. Um, We use the context um, that that I just earlier described um, with machine learning to better prevent and detect and disrupt AML.
1: So you guys have expanded to the U.S.? We have indeed. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: So right now, as a company, uh, we have celebrated um, our 200th employee. Um, so we've had some great growth. Um, out of 200, around 60 are in the Americas. So that would be uh, Toronto, Boston and New York. Um, those are our offices today. <clears throat> we will be expanding more further into places like Charlotte and other areas. Um, and then the rest of our people is spread between the UK, Brussels, Singapore, Melbourne, and Sydney.
1: So I'm wondering, were you getting demand from American clients or were there other reasons you wanted to head out there?
0: America's a big market. You have to be in the States. Um, You know, the, the, the scale... Um, it is, is, is massive, so you have to be there. Um, but it was also demand-led as well. So there was a direction we were gonna to go to the States anyway, um, but there was also demand from a number of financial services clients for us to come and service them around this entity resolution and network problem within financial crime.
1: And how, how had they heard of your services?
0: They've heard of the platform through a number of um, case studies. Um, so the HSBC uh, press that you mentioned earlier, Sebastian, in Financial Times, um, obviously reached out. It, it also came on the Wall Street Journal. Um, so obviously that that had a good exposure to a lot of the clients there. But also a lot of institutions were looking at innovative ways to tackle financial crime. Financial crime is not a new problem. Um, Anti-money laundering is not a new problem. The approach we are taking to tackle it is a new and innovative way. And a lot of banks, and and I'm gonna focus just a bit on the bank side just for now, had vendor fatigue of the traditional way of of detecting and disrupting financial crime, which is very rules-based. So it was a combination of both. There was this capability that was coming out in the UK from, from us. Um, we had some great references, HSBC being one of those, but there was also a demand component as well, where our clients wanted to look at more innovative ways to tackle such problems.
1: So th- this is a really interesting point because was was there a difference in terms of how willing they were to take a risk on a new method? Because you guys are doing something completely new, right? So on one hand, that's exciting, but that's also risky for them, right?
0: For me and for our clients, it's always about the people. People buy from people. People trust people. Um, you know, I was fortunate that my career in tackling financial crime is longer than Contexa. So I started off life uh, at a company called Dedica. Um, I then was an executive director at um, ENY. Between that, I spent a bit of years at SAS. So I had built quite a big network of uh, clients that I had sold to and worked with um, over the last 10, 15 years. Um, So did my founders, my other founders in in the company. And a lot of them had worked with a number of institutions globally, where we have delivered some um, critical applications, um, which have really impacted, uh, positively impacted our clients. Um, So that really did help um, on on at least getting the meeting. Um, Then it's about the technology, right? So I can use um, the management team's brand, my personal brand to, to get us to places. But then the technology needs to speak. Um, and as I say, building context to enal- pe- enable people to make better decisions, it's almost common sense. When you go and buy a house, you never buy a house by looking through the letterbox. You will book a viewing, you'll go in the property, you will look at the kitchen, you look at the bathroom, you look at the bedrooms. What you're doing as a human It's building context. When you come outside the house, you then look at things like crime rates, how far are the bars and bistros, the commons. You're building external context. Who are the neighbors? Who are the neighbors? Which is my third point, the relationships. Who are the neighbors? What did other properties sell for in the neighborhood? You're building relationship context. I took the same theory and applied it into business decision-making. So you are more effective and efficient. the concept at the beginning was pretty spot on. Okay, I can be more effective if I have a bigger picture. Uh, and then it's about proving it. Mm-hmm. And then typically our clients you know, say, that's a great vision. Now here's some data, prove it to me.
2: And did you find um, that in the US, sort of clients were more open to this idea or about the same as in the UK or in Europe? Or what, what, was, the, what was the reception and the perception of the solution and the issues that, that they are facing?
0: So I think the issues and challenges are similar uh, across the globe around this particular area within financial crime. So high volumes of false positives, um, you know, some banks quote 99% are false positives. So that means 99 out of 100 alerts coming out of systems are false positives, which, to be fair, has a number of challenges. First challenge, are you really capturing financial crime? Right? Or are you just picking off the, the small bits at the bottom? The second thing, it has a major human element. Can you imagine those people who have to come in every day to review alerts and 99 out of 100 times, it's a false positive? Getting that person to come back into work the next day is actually a really hard
2: challenge. And do the work work diligently, right? They just say, okay, well, it's a false positive anyway. Who cares, right? (laughs)
0: Precisely. So that that is a challenge in its own right. And remember, from a financial crime point of view, from an AML point of view, every alert needs to be investigated. So, you know, when it comes out the system, a human has to look at it. So that's a challenge in its own right. You know, the motivation of those people and are you really disrupting financial crime? The second challenge um, is efficiency, So it could take anything between three to seven hours to close an alert down, which includes investigation the alert, data gathering, um, understanding the context of the alert, and then pressing false positive at the end. So these challenges within AML, within financial crime, is consistent globally. Now, coming to your um, earlier parts of of that same question, the reception of new tech. So when you've got a problem like this, a lot of people and a lot of organizations are looking at more innovative ways of doing this. Now one of the challenges when you look at things like machine learning um, and, and true AI is transparency, model transparency, data lineage, things around ethical biasness of the model. So these are all challenges inherently when you're looking at true AI. Now, the approach we have taken is very much a transparent view of the analytics using both unsupervised and supervised analytics, using the context. And that was, the reception to that from our clients was very positive, especially in the US, because they have a quite a vigorous process when it comes down to model risk management, getting it through model validation, et cetera, et cetera. They have quite a a large process and a very um, thorough process. And our technology was able to go through that for many of our clients, which is a big win um, for the U.S. clients.
3: Man has described himself in many ways, but if we concentrate on man in relation to his control over his environment, No description is more apt than the description of man as a tool-making animal. And in the short history of mankind, the majority of the tools which man has made can be thought of as an extension of his muscle power, that is, the ability to perform work faster and in greater quantity. In the mid-1940s of the 20th century, a different kind of tool was invented. A tool for extending certain of the powers of man's mind. This tool is the electronic computer.
1: How is the day-to-day of your business different in the US to here? How, how you do things, how you do what you guys do?
0: Culture is very important. Um, the culture of Quantexa is in the people. Um, So ensuring that culture exports and adapts is really important to me. And the adapt is very important to that part. Exporting the culture for what we've created here in London is fantastic, and we export that well. But we need to also adapt to local culture as well. What is the culture so
1: that we have a bit of context? about how you describe it?
0: So for me, you know, there's a few sentiments I've already said today. So it's always about the people. That's inherent in our culture. So those people are, could be our data scientists. It could be the management team. It could be the engineering team. It could be the operations team. It's always about the people, our investors, our clients. They are all part of this culture building. Trust, trust, is also integral to my culture. Um, What, you know, we are here today, three years, seven months, where we are processing over 200 billion records for our clients, servicing over, servicing clients over 80 countries. Um, The reason why we're there is because there's trust. There's trust in the company, there's trust in the platform the next piece which is also really important delivery to our promise now again why we you know hsbc came on the financial times talking about the great work they're doing around uh, ai in financial crime is because we delivered to our promise we set something the client set something and together we delivered and that's also really important. So culture is not one word for me. It lives and breathes in us as people. Um, but a couple of key facets to it would be trust, and it will be delivery to our promise. Um, those will be two elements.
1: So this, this trust issue is interesting, because I'm wondering, are there different ways of building up trust in the US compared to here? What's, what's been your experience with that?
0: So i don't think there's been different ways um you know so the key things for me in the us have been you know we we've brought people together in the us so we've exported some people from london and moved them out so people who've worked with me from pretty much the first three months of starting quantexa um who, who joined me here in london um i was very keen for them to move out to new york um and they did so and and that exports culture we also recruited in New York and originally, so our first office was in was in New York. We had a one desk at the WeWork um, in Midtown uh, in New York. That's how we started um, in, in in New York, and we had one desk, and then we suddenly had five desks, and then it, it grew. So that was that was. But the trust element has been similar. I mean, when we spoke to our clients, or when we um, delivered our projects things around um the delivery to our promise and what we committed to was as same as how we are here in london to how we are in singapore to how we in in new york
1: but i I guess what i'm getting at is when you talk about culture it's really interesting because in every country there are different ways of signaling the same values so i'm wondering did you have to change your messaging did you have to approach clients differently were you getting sort of certain questions or certain interactions from your clients that were different from here, just wondering how you had to adjust to to you know just a, a different country, really.
0: Yeah, so I think work patterns are different. Um, I think things like um, you know events and social events for the teams are different. Um, the, the, the 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 social events we do here is very different to what we would do in uh, in the state and also different in Singapore and so on. Um, and w-
1: could you describe how how it's different and how it feeds into? How you guys operate in the u s versus her
0: so with the us there's a lot of team events, I would say, um, so there's more things they would do as a as a group um, and I think that also comes because of the size um, it's for me it's smaller there's you sixty know, odd people there and there's you know over a hundred or so here in, in London or maybe more now so it's harder to take the whole 100 to 120 people here in london to go and do an event so you have more sub teams here that will do certain things um so it could be you know i remember an event we did a couple of a uh, couple of years ago here in london which was one of the great events we did which was axe throwing we went up to um somewhere near mile end um and it's a great team event uh, actually and it's 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 a great for from, from, from all ages in the company it was a great event in the US um they did um, you know more things around sort of quizzes um and again some more team events like that um so so that so those will be some some of the changes but i think some of that nuance is also the size difference between the two two sides of the um teams from the US to to the UK and
1: and so this is interesting um because you're talking about more team events out in the U.S. Um, where did that come from? Was it the local employees expecting that? Was it what was it about the culture that led you to to have to make that change?
0: Yeah, so I think there's a lot of it was the some of the local the local people that we recruited, um, and obviously they came from different um, organisations. Um, they came from you know some of them came straight out of university and so on. So there was a bit driven from the local side, but I think also the bit I was quite fortunate that the export we did from London was very open-minded around that to embrace that new, um, the new, the new culture as well to adapt.
2: The, um, so so as we have seen in the last financial crisis, you know, 2008 um, and everything, we have seen in the US that the willingness to take risks there in financial institutions was much bigger than it was in Europe, which then, led to the fall down of, you know, Bear and, you know, we had the subprime mortgage crisis and everything. Mortgages, they would have never written, for example, in this country. Does that sort of different attitude or willingness to take risks, especially in financial services, does that um, impact um, um, how you sell your services there?
0: Some of our key applications are within risk. So the risk mindset. are so under risk. You've got obviously compliance risk being one of the types of risk, but you have credit, operational, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So one of the one of the key solutions and the key products we have is within risk. So actually, working in the U.S. because they've gone through that, there is more controls in place, um, in the sense of, and there's more, I would say, more rigor there with regards to because they've gone through some of those challenges. Um, so actually that link back to our platform is actually a, a quite a strong link because they have those controls and therefore they put some of those controls in which will have some of those challenges around false positives, et cetera, et cetera. And they're looking at more innovative ways because the cost of compliance is an increasing cost and every organization is looking to reduce that cost, um, but still stay compliant. Um, so actually, where people have invested quite substantially in those controls, they're looking at more innov- innovative ways to, to bring that cost down. So actually, it's worked out quite well being in the US in that, in that regard.
1: Hi, you're listening to Move Your Business to the United States with Mount Bunnell Advisors. I'm Naz. I'm here with the CEO of Mount Burnell, Sebastian Sauerborn. We are taking questions this season, so send them to us. It's info at So we've had a question from Rebecca, who is here in London. She wants to know the following. She says, can you set up a business, move to the U.S. and then get a visa?
2: Unfortunately, it's not that simple. So what's definitely not possible is, for example, if you're a graphic designer, just set up a company that does graphic design, move, they get a visa as a graphic designer. That doesn't work. Uh, Getting a visa in the United States is a very lengthy complicated and expensive process. So you need at least um, Invest at least a hundred thousand in the US a hundred thousand pounds or dollars. um, I would say um, To be eligible for an investor's visa or the other opportunity is uh, If you have a well-established business in the UK say let's with at least ten Employees, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of turnover. Um, then you can uh, get another type of visa, which is to open a subsidiary uh, in the U.S. But just opening a company there to get a visa is not possible.
1: Is this a question you get quite a lot?
2: Yeah, very often. I mean, some people think you know, getting having a company in the U.S. automatically makes them eligible for a visa. That is not a case. It needs to be very substantial. The business, otherwise, is impossible.
1: Thanks, Sebastian. And thanks, Rebecca, for that question. Keep sending them to us. It's info at mountbonnell.com. That's M-T-B-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. Now, let's get back to this week's episode.
3: It is the fast, reliable, and tireless performance of a variety of arithmetic and logical operations that gives the computer its great utility and power. But merely looking at a computer won't tell us very much about what it actually is doing. Neither will this tell us anything about the revolutionary material and intellectual effects of such machines. We can easily see the material and intellectual effects of, say, machines for transportation. We know that the modern jet aircraft represents a great increase in speed over the earliest aircraft. We also know that modern airplanes have made the world smaller and changed our way of thinking about ourselves and our world. And future means of transportation will bring even more rapid and radical changes. But even the difference between the speed of an ox cart and the fastest rocket is small when compared with the difference in speed between calculation by hand and calculation by computer.
2: Your solutions help to uh, to be able to offer, I don't want to say more riskier solutions, but um, to manage risk better in a sense to offer products um, that wouldn't be possible to offer them conventionally because um, maybe one wasn't able to assess the risk properly, which then led to a crisis like in 2008. But with your solution, um, alarms can be detected, early factors warning. can be detected, yeah. early warnings, Yeah. So you might be able to say they they might be able to offer a product, um, um, without um, creating that pr- similar problems that they used to have before.
0: Absolutely, from a client service point of view and protecting the end client for our clients, um, by using our platform, you are m- more effective and efficient in managing your risk. Yeah. And we've proven that. And if the bank or the organization that we're working with can innovate with, um, you know, either in increasing lending to certain clients because we can see the bigger risk, um, which could be lower, and therefore you should provide more lending to this group uh, or these associates, um, then that's good for the client and also good for the end individual. Um, And, you know, again, that comes down to context. If you look at a, a network of 15 people, or companies connected together and actually when you look at that network in its holistic view the risk is quite low either through supply chain analysis or looking at the average debt or looking at uh, funds in accounts then that could be a very different treatment compared to another network where everyone's in default or they're all trading in their overdrafts. So that's a very different treatment network compared to another network where, you know, it's very cash positive, great investors behind it, lots of funding behind it, Then that's a different type of network. So seeing those two networks in this holistic view up front allows you to make better decisions. Um, and in this case will be a more of a credit
2: decision. Makes sense. What is your what is your personal sort of story in the US, uh, Vish? I mean, have you ever lived there? Have you studied there? What's your, you know, when did you first? Um, I mean, um, how old are you, if, if I'm asking? How old am yeah. I?
0: <laughs> I'm 36. <laughs> You're 36.
2: So I'm sure when you grew up, you watched all these American programs um, in television. So I always think. American culture has greatly influenced us, even if we have never been there, right? I mean, Hollywood movies, absolutely, television. So, what was your what was your uh, story there? What was your you know when when did you first kind of um, when did America first came up on your horizon?
0: That's a great question, Sebastian. So um, you you are absolutely right. I do watch a lot of um, American um, TV programs, and I'm a I do watch a lot of billions. <laughs> and I do watch a lot of Suits. Um, and actually, in both of those two uh, dramas, um, have influenced the way I think and the way I I would say drive my businesses in different ways. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's been a big influence, I would say. With a lot of lot of other things, um, so a bit of background. So my my dad came to England um, in 1961 from India. Um, he came um, with one shilling. And one uh, one shilling in, in his pocket. And, you know, he did incredibly well from himself and retired in the late 90s. Um, and he, he married my mom in 65. Uh, and they both worked together pretty much 12 to 14 hours every day um, for, for over 30 years. And then they retired in the late 90s. Um, so business has been with me For a very young age, Um, you know, I've done very well academically, but business-wise, you know, most kids when they were about six years old, after school, went home. After school, I used to go to my dad's cash and carry, um, and I worked there from about four till (laughs) six thirty before going home. Um, So, um, it's a good apprenticeship, no? It it, it was for twenty years, Uh, (laughs) and and it's it's. um, so business has always been with me um, from a very young age. And in the family, business has always been discussed, um, which my mum always tried to push away, So when we get home, no more business talk. Uh, but that, you know, never could, happened. It's, it's very hard for that to happen when, when you're in that business mindset. But um, just sort of switching back to, to the States, I mean, I've been working in and out of the States since 2005. Um, I, when I was back in my previous careers, I spent some time, out I never physically moved out, um, but I've spent a lot of my time in the States, especially in our offices, but in, in, in New York, Boston, and, and obviously in, in Toronto. I spent a lot of time in Charlotte um, with some of our clients there. Um, so I do spend a lot of my time. But things like billions and suits, coming back to that, um, there's a lot of parallels you can drive to that in the way you do your own business. Um, and there's a lot of things around, um, again, culture, positive and negative, you see in some of those programs that you, you may want to drive into your own business. Well,
1: because also business is such a big part of American culture as well, in, in a way that I think maybe only recently in the UK it's been cool to like take risks and be an entrepreneur or something. Like I feel like we've culturally been a little bit... Suspicious of why you do those sorts of things. So I'm wondering how, that's, how these different cultural inputs have affected Spot. how you do business here, how yeah. you expand.
0: Every business person or entrepreneur has to be able to take risk. Otherwise, you wouldn't be an entrepreneur. You know, I was doing incredibly well at EY, um, and um, it was actually at a conference. Um, it was ACAMS, which is the big AML conference. Um, and I was actually in Vegas uh, for the big ACAMS conference in Vegas, where I decided to resign from the firm and start my own business. And you and... wanted the roulette table, or was <laughs> <laughs> it? wasn't <laughs> I very much wish, you. no, it wasn't that. It was actually because it was, it was growing in my mind for quite some time that, you know, this problem around context... Um, And this problem um, that institutions facing about making those better decisions um, had been growing on me for many months. And it was actually at the ACAMS conference where I actually met some other startup vendors where I met a lot of um, people from the States who had started up their businesses, um, who were pitching, you know, their technology in machine learning or whatever and, you know, trying to sell this. And I was like, I can do that. Mm. And it's a risk. Of course it is. Um, but I back myself. I back a team of people that trust me and I trust them that I can feel that I can bring them on this journey with me. Um, and it's, for, you know, it's, it's quite ironic that decision actually did happen in the States.
1: Well, it makes sense in a way, though. Yeah. Well, and you're in Vegas as well, which is like capital of (laughs) risk taking. It's of different. different
0: It's quite ironic, actually. Yeah. When I do look back at it, and it was, it was, um, it was quite lucky um, because I've been talking to my wife for a long time during that process that I may look to do this, I may look to do this, and um, you know, again, coming back to uh, support, starting up your own business is not just about you. It's about your family as well. And, you know, I'm quite lucky that um, my wife has been with me through this journey. You know, we've been together since we were 16. Um, So, you know, she was my high school sweetheart, as you would say in the States. Uh, But she's been with me throughout my whole journey. And, um, you know, this was a combined decision because it directly impacts your family. Um, Directly impacts your family. Starting your own business is not just about you. It's about if you have a, if you, if you, if you have a family, it's, it's a direct impact to them as well.
1: So you're talking about these people you met in this conference in Vegas um, who had taken a risk and started their own, their own companies. Um, I'm wondering what were the reactions of your colleagues back here in London when you said, I'm going to quit and I'm going to go off and do my own thing?
0: Hmm. So some thought it was only a matter of time that I would do something on my own.
2: Because also of your, like, you know, your kind of heritage from your dad, that yeah. entrepreneurial so urgent and spirit that you inherited.
0: To, to be clear, in my family, no one's ever worked for anyone. Oh, <laughs> wow, incredible. <laughs> They've always done their own thing. I was the first person in, I think, pretty much my entire family's generations that actually went first and got a job and didn't do their own business. Um, and my dad said, I'll give you three months-ish working for someone... <laughs> and then you're gonna go and do it yourself. And, uh, you, know, f- you know, almost 14, 15 years later, I then did it, right, and I did my own business. So some p- people who are close to me um, knew that it's only a matter of time. And the timing was perfect for me. So the, the increase and the adoption of open source, open architecture, data lakes, big data, big analytics, has only been something that's been happening over the last sort of five, six, seven years. If I tried to do Quantexa 10 years ago, it wouldn't be as successful as today because some of the underlying open architecture that we've built Quantexa on has only been around in the last sort of five to seven years. And the most important thing with technology, as we all know, is adoption of technology. And if I tried to go to a large organization many years ago with some open architecture or open source in my platform, they'll be like, no, no, no we don't do that, we can't buy that, blah, blah, blah. But there is a big pull now of looking at new innovative ways of tackling problems using the best of open architecture that's available. So the timing thing has also been quite important. But just, uh, Nas, coming back to your question, what did people say? So people that were close to me, it was only about time. some people were quite surprised um, that, okay, you know, you're doing incredibly well at the firm. Um, and I was having a great time. I mean, it was a great firm I was working for. Um, so some were quite surprised. But people that were really close to me um, was almost, you know, it's, uh, it's, it was always a matter of time before you're going to do
2: your own thing. Sounds good. I used to work for Ernst Young as well, you know. Uh, okay. But also for PwC. I prefer PwC, to be honest. But that's a different question. <laughs> Two great firms. <laughs> <laughs>
3: The problem-solving power of mathematics and logic, combined with the speed and accuracy of a machine for carrying out these operations, is the basis of the computer revolution. But does this mean that a computer can produce a new idea, or make an original contribution to knowledge?
1: I wanted to ask a little bit about the nuts and bolts of moving, because a lot of the people listening are people who are also in this process. what, what were the actual steps you took when you were setting up in the U.S.? Also, any, anything you didn't expect, any do's or don'ts, looking, looking back at that early process right now?
0: Oh, wow. It, it's, it's a bit of a blur, but and that's because it was, it was a lot of late nights. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it says a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, look, Everybody it, says that, by the way. <laughs>
0: <yeah>. <laughs> all, all I would say is exporting or setting up outside um, of the U.K. in any country, is hard, um, and the states is is no different. Um, yes, there's easier processes. You know, I look at certain other countries. Language barriers can also help, can um, can also hurt. Obviously, in the states, that, that's helpful. Um, but all I would say, make sure you're well funded, uh, because the setup is not cheap, um, but also the sales process is not cheap. Um, so, you know, when you're selling to clients internationally, you know, if you're not there, then you are flying backwards and forwards from say London to New York or to Boston or or wherever you're selling to, that's can be quite expensive because it's not just the cost of the airline, it's the hotels, it's the time there, it's the commuting around of one individual, then multiple individuals and so on and so forth. then, you know, when you're starting to recruit, getting the right contracting in place for the employment laws is set very different. And then we took external legal advice pretty much every part of the process just because the way we were set up, because of the growth we were having and the clientele we had at that time expected those processes within within my company. Um, so therefore, we had legal support throughout that entire journey. Um, and that was very, very... Uh, supportive, but also came with a cost. Um, so that I would also say to any entrepreneur who's coming out of the UK going into the US, make sure you're well funded, and time um, is key here. So do not expect things that's going to happen really quickly. Um, if you think something's going to take three months, take six months. Some, you know just factor all of this in. Um, you know I come from a quite a, a, a rigid project planning background from my consulting days. So make sure you have a plan. Um, make sure you have a plan that you can be agile in because there'll be certain forks in the road that you will need to take. Uh, but make sure you have a quiet accurate plan. But costs, funding, setup, up, sell cycles with your clients are all very expensive components.
1: So just on this point, Vish, if you had to look back at who was setting up in the in the US, what advice would you give your old self? Time. Okay, time. In terms of expect that it's going to take longer than you think. But and do you think because with the US, you know, it's the same language, there are some cultural similarities. Do you think that maybe makes people think that it's going to be easier than it actually is?
0: I totally agree, and and that was the sort of false assumptions I had um when i when i originally you know started q and going into the states it's like okay i've sold here before um you know in my previous uh, careers oh it, it's going to be it's going to be a lot easier than say you know setting up somewhere else um but it took time and it took so opening up bank accounts mm. you know just being able to open up a bank account was quite challenging um you know not just for the states, but other 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 countries as well. You know, being on the preferred supplier list for organisations so that you can even contract with the client takes a long time. So PSLs, um, preferred supplier lists. Um, you know, no matter where you are, that's not just a states thing, but those things take time. Um, can be a real barrier to entry for a client, to get into a client. um, And that's no different to the States as well.
1: And a minute ago, you were mentioning face-to-face meets with clients um, and how that can be really costly. I'm wondering how that is in the US compared to here.
0: Compounded. Because if you look at, if you look in London, and I'm looking at sort of my clientele, which are, you know, banks, insurers, et cetera, there's two locations really, Canary Wharf or the city. You have your odd ones, which are a bit out, but it's usually Canary Wharf, or the city.
1: Which aren't even that far away.
0: Absolutely, right? You know, I use public transport. Um, you know, either I take the uh, Waterloo and City line or I take the uh, Jubilee line. I'm, I'm in Canadian War 4 in the city, right? Like Half it's an hour in between. Yeah, so pretty much. Much. I was going to say 20 minutes.
1: minutes.
2: 20 minutes,
1: okay. But I'm
0: optimistic with my timing. <laughs> Look, it's 20 or 30 minutes. But when you're saying I'm going for the States, where do you go? You know, because a lot of, if you say New York... OK, um, so the business side might be in New York, but if you're selling to IT, they're not necessarily in New York. They could be in New Jersey or in Charlotte or in other areas. So again, if you're trying to do FaceTime or face, face-to-face face meetings, you might land in New York, but actually you're then spending a lot of time in New Jersey or in uh, Boston or in Charlotte to see the end client because they're, they're based there. Um, so that's challenging you know just trying to move around in the states compared to say doing it in london or in paris um it's scale it's the scale problem
1: but this is an interesting point because and i I feel like non-londoners listening are going to hate that i'm going to say this but so much so much goes on in london it's the center of so many industries um whereas in the US it's a bit different, you know, you don't not everything is in New York or in San Francisco or wherever. So so I'm kind of wondering how that plays out. Like when you first opened your office in New York, were you expecting that you'd be spending a lot more time in New York um, or or did you think that no, you know, this is going to be you know, our our clients going to be more spread out than this?
0: No, so we with, you know, with the experience from the past, I very much knew that yes, we're going to have offices in, in New York, we have an office in New York, but that won't be my only office. Okay, um, we very well, knowingly, um, I, I I knew that so okay. when when we started. So uh, because because when I sold in the past, some of my decision makers were in Charlotte, mm-hmm. some of them were out in uh, San Fran, etc. Um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But for any company that's going into that, you need to have a base somewhere, and we chose New York because actually coming back to the supply point, the two clients I were engaged with were based in New York, um, just near Wall Street. So that made a lot of sense uh, to be in New York. But I knew very much so that you know we will land here, and we will have offices very quickly all over uh, the states. And we quickly went into Boston. Um, Boston was great um, because we we making that to more of our um, data science. Um, area and we, we, we work very closely with the local universities um, to, to attract the talent into our company. and we're doing some very much some very exciting stuff with our clients from our Boston offices as well as um, expanding to Toronto as well. Uh, So Toronto, we we did in 2018, uh, beginning of 2018, we expanded and we continue to expand in Toronto. Again, some great people we're recruiting there um, with some real new, innovative work in the machine learning side that we're doing there.
3: A man in a lifetime. The lifetime of all mankind is but a brief moment in the long history of this earth of ours. And only yesterday in the history of mankind has man made any significant advance in his control over his earthly environment. Computers, machines for logic, may change this more than any other of man's inventions.
1: So you've, you you've kind of already talked about this, but I'm gonna say it as a summi- summation. So Vish, if you had to give a couple of quick tips for someone who's right now in the process of expanding to the US, what, what would you say to them?
0: Factor time, be well-funded, um, and most importantly, um, get the culture right. The culture piece, I would say is critical. And make sure you adapt to local culture as well as bring you know, bring the great stuff that you're doing in UK or wherever across as well. But time, funding, export and adapt of culture.
1: You've been listening to Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bunnell Advisors. I'm Nastrian tavakoli Far, and today's guest was Vishal Maria of Quantexa. We've put their details in the show notes. Do check them out. Emmett Glynn is our sound engineer, and Nevena Paunovic is our podcast manager. You'll have also heard some samples from the Prelinger archives, who have some great historical material from the U.S., We'll be back in two weeks. Send us your questions about expanding to the U.S. The address is info at mountburnell.com. That's M-T-B-O-N-N-E-L-L or see the show notes for more. Okay, we'll speak to you soon.